What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Josh Stein is the CEO of Harbor. In this conversation, we talk about tokenized securities, the future of finance, and why both him and I believe that every stock, bond, currency, and commodity will be digitized in the future. This conversation is really illuminating about the things that are coming down the pipe in the financial industry. I enjoyed it, and I hope you do as much as I did. Before we get started, I want to talk about one of our sponsors, BlockFi. These guys are doing really interesting work in crypto lending. What they allow you to do is keep your crypto, put it up as collateral, and receive a US dollar loan funded directly to your bank account. They do loans ranging from $2,000 to $10 million, and they're perfect for helping you reach your financial goals of all sizes. You should visit BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, that's BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, one more time, type it in BlockFi.com slash POMP if you'd like to learn more about putting your crypto to work without having to sell it. Definitely do it. We all know legendary venture capitalist Tim Draper. He's one of the earliest supporters of Bitcoin and has done a ton of work to drive crypto adoption. Many people don't know about one of his newest endeavors, though, Draper University. If you're an entrepreneur looking to launch your idea in crypto, you can apply to attend their pre-accelerator program and learn how to build successful global companies from Tim. And for all you corporate executives out there, you don't need to feel left out either. Draper University also has a week-long intensive program that will get you educated on all things blockchain and crypto. As we know, knowledge is power, so don't get left behind. You can check out draperuniversity.com. Again, that's draperuniversity.com. And let me know what you think. If it's good enough for Tim, it will probably be good enough for you. And as Nike says, just do it. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only blockchain event and media production company I trust. If you're an investor, lawyer, accountant, or entrepreneur, and want to attend exclusive events and dinners, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you won't be disappointed. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, uh, we are here with Josh Stein from Harbor. Um, Josh is one of the uh, the first companies that we invested in uh, at, over at Morgan Creek. So uh, thank you very much for uh, for coming on. Thanks for having me, Pop, and thanks for investing in us. Yeah. Um, we'll get to the big news that you guys announced uh, recently mm-hmm. here in a minute, but uh, maybe let's just start with your personal background um, and kind of how you got uh, all the way into uh, blockchain, crypto, and tokenized securities. Sure. So... Um, I got pulled in from a bunch of folks that I knew from a prior startup I was at, Zenefits. Um, at that time, I was the general counsel as the chief compliance officer. I also had strategy and biz dev for a while. Um, I got really tight with um, David Sachs and Arisa Mono and Bob Ramika, uh, who were the co-founders at Harbor. And so I'd been at Zenefits for about three years and was ready to take the next step and reached out to David Sachs and asked him um, you know, what he thought about next steps. And then that's when he brought up Harbor and said, you know, I should, you should, I should really kick the tires on it. So I knew the team and his, his folks I really admired and respected. And when I asked what uh, Harbor was about, he said, oh, it's about blockchain and it's about crypto. And at that time, all I knew was the hype I'd read in the press and I had an immediate and very strong negative reaction. <laughs> very strong. I said, I just blurted out, that's a Ponzi scheme. Everything's going to zero. Um, it's, it's much ado about nothing. Um, and my background is for, I'm a attorney by training like you guys in the army before I did that. Um, and I was a federal prosecutor for a while. So that was the mindset that I was coming through on was, um, this mindset of being concerned about money laundering, about pseudonymity, um, and just not really understanding the true application. But, you know, um, when David Sachs, Sachs says you should dig in on something, <laughs> you dig in on it. So I did. And, um, and I had the utmost respect for Bob and Arisa and some of the other folks from Zenefits who started out very early at Harvard. And as soon as I started kicking the tires, understanding the technology and what they were trying to do, I guess I did a 180, got incredibly excited and started diving in. Got it. And so what are you guys doing right now at a high level? 
So Harbor was founded to tokenize traditional private securities. You can think an LP interest in a fund, a share in a private REIT, which is our current deal, a share in a private company, like the shares that you tokenized. Um, it, it goes back to the origin story of Harbor. David was raising his first VC fund a little bit over a year ago, and he wanted to tokenize it. He was really into blockchain and wanted to give his LPs some liquidity. And when he started diving in, he realized there was no compliant way to tokenize those LP interests and that people that had tokenized it before were probably going to run into compliance problems. Because um, when a regulator asks you who your LPs are, you can't just shrug your shoulders and say, I've got a list of alphanumeric addresses on a blockchain. So um, he had an aha moment. He said, hey, there's a business here. And then he pulled in Bob and Arisa. And a few months later, they pulled me in and we're off to the races. And there's been a lot of uh, building and prepping to come to this day where yesterday, as you know, um, we publicly announced the launch of our platform and the launch of our first deal, our first tokenized private securities on the um, platform. And and before we get into the deal specifically, let's talk a little bit about um when we talk about tokenizing the asset, right? What exactly does that mean from a, um, a, a an execution or a uh, engineering side? So we'll talk about engineering or how we do it. Um, but first, I think let's talk about what it is we're actually tokenizing. Okay. So we're tokenizing shares in a private REIT. So um, you're not tokenizing the actual building. People say, oh, we're going to tokenize the building. I'll, I'll say that. It's shorthand. It's convenient shorthand to say that you're tokenizing an interest in the entity that owns the building. To tokenize an actual building means you're tokenizing the title, which is something that the county recorder's office would have to do. And there's already experiments there. The Cook County Recorder's Office was early in experimenting with it. But what you're tokenizing is a member interest in the LLC that owns it, an LP interest in the partnership that owns it, a share in the private REIT that owns it. Got it. And how do you do that? Um, We do it with a platform plus a protocol. We're a software platform to onboard and vet the investor, to manage the legal documents, and to uh, manage the flow of funds into the initial placement. Then we're also a blockchain protocol that controls how that security token trades throughout its entire life. Those two things have to work together. Our fundamental thesis is that you always have to know in real time the real world identity of buyer buyer and seller, or else you cannot control for the compliance things you need to control for. Um, and if you don't mind, I'll do a little bit of an extended overview yeah, of how the platform works. Um, I'm going to start with the end, which is how this trades with the secondary liquidity, and then loop back to the beginning and run you through how it works A to Z. So essentially, every time the security token goes to trade, it pings Harbor. Harbor is the all-knowing trade compliance oracle in the cloud. And we check all these complicated um, private placement compliance rules, and you can boil them down into the who, what, and where. Rules around who the buyer and seller are rules around what the trade can be or what the cap table has to look like, and then finally rules on where it can trade. And the baseline are uh, rules uh, around the securities laws, tax rules that are necessary to maintain tax treatment, um, and then of rules that the issuer may impose uh, in addition to that for corporate governance or other prudential reasons. So, um, so every time this token goes to trade, it pings Harbor. Harbor checks the who, what, where. If those all check out, trade goes through, no one knows Harbor was ever involved. These don't trade on Harbor. These trade on exchanges. They trade on OTC desks. They trade on marketplaces or bulletin boards. Um, And if any of those don't check out, Harbor throws an error and the trade never happens. Um, The best analogy for a variety of things we're going to talk about is the transition from email to snail mail. And you can imagine us throwing an error is like an email message bouncing back. And so we throw an error and it'll say error would result in too many investors or error would result in too few. Um, And like if you look at the investment structure of our first deal, it's a private REIT. Private REIT has a very complicated rule set. Has to maintain a minimum of 100 investors for tax purposes, not more than 19.99 per um, class of equity, or else it has to go public. Uh, Non-U.S. persons have to own less than 50% for tax purposes. Top five shareholders have to own less than 50% for tax purposes. There are holding periods, special rules for affiliates and control persons, etc. I mean, just an endless list of complicated requirements. And any private security, any private placement has that. If you want to be exempt from having to register, from having to do an S1 and go public, there are these complicated rules. And it's those complicated rules and the paper-bound system that we're in are why private securities today are fundamentally illiquid. And so we think our technology unlocks the potential for liquidity. Things will never be as liquid as the public markets, but they'll be far more liquid than they are today, we think. 
Let's go a little bit deeper on this idea of like compliant, automated compliance or compliance written into code, right? Mm-hmm. The, the law written into the code. Because what you're talking about is basically taking the existing laws, rules, regulations, and kind of criteria, and you're simply you taking the English language and how they're supposed to be applied in every situation, and you're writing it into that code that then will execute without a without human oversight, meaning on each individual trade, no one's looking at the trade, etc. The code has been designed in such a way that it, it is going to govern these trades. And there's audits and kind of periodic checking to make sure the code still works and all that. But really, the code's governing, right? It's doing it in real time, and, and it's allowing the lawmakers or the regulators to go from being reactive, right? Allowing if somebody does a, a non-compliant trade, then they have to come in and enforce and, and spend all this time, money, resources. To now you're turning them into more proactive, right? That that rejection of, of a non-compliant trade, right? Through those errors, et cetera. Is this just happening in the securities market? Like just kind of mind dump on me in terms of where that's going and, and why it's important and how do regulators look at it and, and all sure. that. So you can think of us as an automated transfer agent. Um, transfer agents today impose these rules um, in a world in which you fax and you email and you're only open during banker's hours and when you're not in the Hamptons and everything's very difficult. Um, the You're correct. All the, These securities rules around private placements are often honored only in the breach today. In other words, it happens that people sell to non-accredited or they have too many investors on the cap table or um, they're not held for the proper holding periods. And no one really has insight into it. No one's really enforcing it, um, especially if they're not using a transfer agent and lots of folks don't. Um, And what ends up happening is the only time so a regulator hears about it is when there's a big lawsuit or an enforcement action down the road. And what happens is you're years later, um, you're subpoenaing a bunch of different, you're subpoenaing 20, 50 different people. You got banker boxes of documents and you're that poor government worker on a weekend trying to put it all together. Um, and I've been there. I was a federal prosecutor in a formal life. Um, instead, what we do is we can't enforce all the rules uh, ex ante from the beginning, but we can enforce a lot of them. And so a lot of these rules get enforced before the trade ever happens and it prevents improper trades. And then if you do have a problem down the road on the things we can't enforce, um, the regulator and that issuer who is, bears so much responsibility for this, they have a perfect record of who owned what when. What is the regulator's current position on the stuff, right? Meaning that my get, you know, I think we're yeah we're publicly on record. I wrote a media post that said I think the SEC will mandate the use of I said security tokens, but really just this idea of automated compliance and, and kind of law written into code, etc. In your conversations today, both in the U.S. and internationally, are regulators you know one aware of this stuff? Two, are they open to it? And three, do you think they'll eventually kind of embrace it? Do you think they're have concerns like where are they kind of sitting on this right now yes 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 and yes um (laughs) so yeah i mean look we've had conversations with a number of regulators in the u.s um and several abroad everything from sort of informal half-hour chats to more in-depth sit-downs with large numbers of high-level folks um fundamentally uh i think what's important to know is there is no regulatory ambiguity in what harbor is going after these are things that are traditional private securities there's no question of is this a protocol token or is this a cryptocurrency? These are securities. These are shares. These are limited partner interests. Yep. So the rules are clear. And our application, the technology to enforce those rules, um, we've worked with the best outside counsel and the best minds. And we don't think there's any ambiguity or need for changes in the rules. And like I said, we think what we're doing is pro-regulatory. A lot of rules that um, don't get honored or forced today, we enforce ex ante. And then we've got these great records for the regulators ex post if it does turn out to be a problem down the road. Um, and um, we have designed our systems. We use um, institutional grade a lot, we, you know, that catchphrase, because I think it goes to the depth and care of what we're doing. And what we were building, it felt like we were peeling the world's largest onion. Every step of the way, there was another layer to go um, to figure it out because of these rules. And then how do they apply with the new technology and where you're trying to allow for trading where on a practical level, it couldn't occur before, so people didn't deal with these situations. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that work out? Um, and we were, we used really good people, both externally. We hired up two um, compliance personnel. Each of them has more than 20 years of experience at institutions like Citigroup and JP Morgan. Um, and so we feel that um, the use of the blockchain to record and transfer the ownership of these security interests works really well. Got it. Um, what are the risks? In let's say 
all of this happens, right? All the law gets written into code and there's automation around compliance, et cetera. What risk do you foresee or where's like the downside to doing this? I think um, we can talk short term and long term. Mm -hmm. So short term, I think people are rightfully concerned about, okay, where's the liquidity going to be? Technology does not provide liquidity. Buyers and sellers create liquidity. The technology removes the frictions to trading. Um, And we should probably spend some time talking about what those are and why it does this. But we think it enables liquidity and that there's a desire for liquidity that once it's enabled will happen. But this is all new. So, um, folks, there's a concern that, well, when's the liquidity going to be there and is it going to be there? And that's a fair concern. Mm-hmm. Um, we feel good it's going to be there, but it's going to take a critical mass of investment opportunities and investors and market makers and other participants. Um, we're excited about this whole ecosystem that's gotten built out to enable this, all these different um, companies and protocols and important players from qualified custodians like BitGo to um, Prime Trust to um, important protocol layers like DYDX or Dharma um, and Zero X. The and license exchanges getting built on that. All of that enables and helps to create participants mm-hmm. to help create this liquidity down the road. But that's what if I was um, valuing this as an investor. Um, I would evaluate the fundamentals of the investment and think of the potential liquidity as an upside. So today you invest in private securities that exist on paper. There's almost no liquidity in them. So if you would invest in this investment anyway, then any potential liquidity, the value of tokenization is nothing but potential upside. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing is, is the use of tokenization, the use particularly of modern software platforms to onboard and vet investors and process uh, the private placement that today is usually done with faxes and emails and it's very painful. The ability to do that efficiently and cost-effectively means you can syndicate more widely. In other words, you lower the check size. People can get into investments they couldn't get into before. Um, So for example, we deal with a lot of real estate asset owners. And let me Mm -hmm. give you an example um, using a building in in my hometown, San Francisco. Let's say, I'm not talking to people on the ferry building, but let's say I did. That building's worth roughly $300 million. If you as the asset owner want to raise capital on that asset, you have three choices today, and they all three can be unpalatable. You can sell the ferry building, but you don't want to do that. You're a real estate person. You love gorgeous property like that. You can um, raise debt on the asset. You can lever up, but you may be as levered up as you want to be, particularly at this point in the economic cycle. You can sell a minority interest, but if you sell that, a hundred million dollar minority interest. There's not a lot of people that can cut a hundred million dollar check. Mm-hmm. Pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. Um, cut a hundred million dollar check and only one minority interest is even smaller group. Yeah, and so what happens is, and you just put you just put your finger on it. One is is they squeeze you on valuation, limit the number of bit of bidders. The other is they negotiate onerous control provisions, which when I'm talking to these asset owners, they actually more than the valuation. That's what they don't like. They don't want to lose. Uh, control the asset that way. So now using the power of modern software tools and tokenization and this infrastructure on crypto, you can take that 100 million, put it in a single asset private read, a tokenized reader, what we call a T-read, um, and syndicate it more widely. I'm just going to round off the numbers for easy math. $100 million, 2,000 max investors, that's $50,000 unit investor, $50,000 per token or share. How many investors worldwide would want to be invested alongside quality owner operators in mm-hmm. quality real estate um, at that check size where they've got liquidity on the back end, where they can access that and and um, borrow against it um, or sell it and, and raise money on it anywhere they've got access to a computer around the world. Because as we know, and, and as almost all the listeners of this podcast know, the wonders of the blockchain are with the infrastructure that's getting built out. You can trade 24-7, 365 around the globe with near instantaneous settlement and no counterparty risk. And that's a real revolution. What is the asset classes, right? Or, or the types of assets you think this works for best today? Right? Yeah. So, so I completely agree with the technology is not going to bring the liquidity. The liquidity is driven by do buyers and sellers want to transact in it? And that's really driven by the attractiveness of the asset itself, right? Um, but are there types of assets that are more susceptible to finding benefit with this? Or do you think it's every asset that is attractive? I think um, certain assets benefit from it more and are going to be more willing to go early. Eventually, okay. everything 
tokenizes. Essentially, today we record ownership on Excel spreadsheets. Um, a lot of startups in Silicon Valley, their cap table is an Excel spreadsheet with a law firm. Ethereum is the giant Excel spreadsheet in the sky, that distributed ledger that has all these wonderful programmable properties. Um, and eventually everything will tokenize. But short term, I think tokenization brings the most value to those asset classes that consume a lot of capital, are sensitive to the cost of capital, and are relatively indifferent to the identity of the investor, because then that opens up the potential for this liquidity that brings value. So, um, so from the asset owner's point of view, they can tap more capital, from more people, from mm-hmm. more places, more quickly at a lower cost of capital. Um, and for the investor, they can get into investments they couldn't otherwise because it's syndicated more widely. They can get liquidity that's important to them. And I've even talked to sovereign wealth funds who are looking for more liquidity in their private investments. Um, and then what becomes really interesting is a world in which you start to tokenize a lot of these assets. You can now create investments that just aren't possible before. So if you take all those um, parameters, Real estate is one of the best first use cases, and you just see so many of the startups going into this. Um, I'd say of our sales pipeline is all inbound interest. I'd say it's 75% real estate, 25% other asset classes, because real estate consumes a lot of capital. It's very sensitive to the cost of capital. Most real estate operators will take capital from anyone that's legal around the world. <laughs> Why start with a property in South Carolina? Um, it or, w- actually, let me back up. So first, just describe the property, and then let's talk about why. Sure. So um, the first um, deal that we're offering, it's the hub at Columbia REIT. Um, it's tokenizing approximately 49% of an ownership interest in the entity that owns um, the hub at Columbia. It's luxury uh, student housing in South Carolina. Just It's about three blocks off the University of South Carolina campus. And, and luxury, by the way, this thing's like decked out, looks like uh, MTV Cribs of, uh, of student housing. It does. It's... Um, <laughs> I did not live that way in college. I, I got envy. I've got big envy. And it's got like a pool. It's got this big gym, right? It's got it's, all kinds of crazy stuff. It does. It's. Um, yeah. I mean, college students are living. They're living well. Well, some of them are at least. Um, and so uh, it's owned by Convexity Properties. That's the real estate arm of DRW, which mm-hmm. was founded by Don Wilson. I think what's really interesting is I'd love to talk a little bit about the background of Don Wilson, who people probably know from the crypto space, because I think this. Um, deal and what we're doing with tokenizing securities um, really brings together all the different strands of his background. And it's, okay. why, it's part of the reason why we were so eager to partner with him for our first deal. So um, Don started out trading um, currencies and derivatives around currencies like euro dollar options in the open pits in Chicago 25 years ago. Okay. Did very well. Um, and uh, then in the um, crash of 2008, shortly thereafter, he got into real estate with Convexity Properties. So he went from something incredibly liquid, which is the FX markets are enormous, to something that's incredibly illiquid, commercial real estate, and did very well there. Then, as you know, in 2014, he founded Cumberland, which started trading in crypto assets, particularly Bitcoin. So that is, um, again, a highly liquid asset. It's an alternative currency and mm-hmm. lined up with his FX background. So up until, say, this deal or a year ago, deep experience in markets and trading, deep experience in crypto, and a deep experience in real estate. Now we're combining all those things with this first deal with him, right? We are taking commercial real estate, which today is incredibly illiquid. We're putting it into using the crypto technology, the blockchain technology to make it in a more liquid format um, that ultimately will allow for trading and investments and derivatives and trading based off those investments that just aren't possible today. Got it. And, And then this building specifically, right? What was so attractive about it from a, I think, you know, the first time you, you mentioned to me, like student housing, for example, is like very recession proof. Yeah. Right. Like, like what, what is some of the elements of, um, the types of real estate that you think will be attractive for tokenized securities first? Um, or do you think it's just all real estate in general? Yeah. So let me not talk about this particular okay. deal. Yeah. I, for that, I'd have one of our um, registered reps talk about it, but I think just real estate as an asset class generally. Fair. Um, so most real estate is privately held, not publicly held in the public REITs. Um, what's nice about these tokenized private REIT structures is it allows investors in a smaller check size and more liquid format to get into private commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Now, let me push you on something, right? Uh, I think a lot of people's rebuttal would be, this sounds like crowdfunding. 
right? And, there, and there's plenty of quote unquote crowdfunding type platforms that have popped up in and around real estate. So there's ones around equity, there's ones around debt, et cetera. In your eyes, is it the compliance, the automation, the, the, the true technology that's managing the capital stack and the trading that separates it? Or are there other components that separate it from that fundraising around crowdfunding, et cetera? I think there are other components as well, but liquidity is the most important. And uh, the liquidity then ties into the legal structures that are okay. used and how you structure the investment. So a lot of the crowdfunding sites, you're investing in their funds. So I am uh, Acme crowdfunding site. So mm-hmm. what you are buying is an LP interest in Acme's fund and Acme is going out there. Acme, in other words, has is is intermediated you between you and the owner operator. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, Some of the crowdfunding sites match you up directly. Um, the the way the structures work is um, the, often they're very they're a lot smaller deals. They're they tend to be less institutional quality. Not always. There's some some have some really quality deals, but historically at least they've been um, smaller end, less institutional quality, um, not having the ability to get alongside and um, not having that liquidity. And a lot of them are very time limited deals or three four year deals. Um, what this does is these tokenized private REIT structures. You can syndicate far more widely. You can have a maximum of 2,000 investors per class of equity. You could even do a preferred and a common or a couple different types of preferred and have 4,000 or 6,000 investors. Mm-hmm. That means you can have a bigger investment. You can do bigger deals, institutional quality deals, where people are looking for 20, 50, 100, 200 million, and yet still syndicate them down to a level that looks like a crowdfunding check size. And then you've got liquidity on the back end. And what's important is using the blockchain technology, like Ethereum, is it ties you into this whole ecosystem. Um, so, you know, if you're a crowdfunding site, you say, well, I'll just develop my own SaaS software solution. I'll just allow people to trade on my site. That's like having an email solution where you can only email to people in your organization. And I can remember um, in college, we had an email system. You can only email people on the college campus. No one used it. Mm-hmm. But then I distinctly remember that moment where um, suddenly everything could interoperate, Gmail and Yahoo and Outlook, um, and could talk to email systems around the world because there were open protocol, internet protocol standards that interoperated. Um, and suddenly you had all these companies springing up and developing around it, and then everybody's emailing everybody. You no longer um, sent snail mail, you only sent email. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's similar here. If you think of all the different layers of what has to happen to create a liquid market commercial real estate, um, there is a issuing platform. Think of it as the technical version of underwriting. Um, that's got to happen. That's what Harbor does. There is a um, custody layer. That's what BitGo does. There is um, an investment banking layer, uh, which is not necessarily technologically oriented. There is um, there is the exchange layer, which can have multiple layers. And for each layer, there's different stacks you got to develop. There's a tech stack. You got to develop a lot of tech. There's a regulatory stack. You got to get licensed. You got to do reporting and hire the right people. There's a business stack. You got to hire people and create an organization and processes. And then there's a relationship stack. You got to create relationships with investors or with issuers or with exchangers or whomever. And so to develop all those different layers and each stack in each one, and then to duplicate that in every jurisdiction around the world is never going to happen. And that's why it doesn't happen today, right? It's the internet wouldn't have worked if it was just one centralized solution owned by one company. Um, it worked because there were these interoperable standards. And so um, that's why, for instance, our first issuances are ERC-20 standard tokens, because it ties into this whole ecosystem of important players. It ties into qualified custodians like BitGo. It ties into um, protocol layers like 0x and the exchanges being built on top of it. You can think of places like the ocean. Um, you can think of other exchanges that accept ERC-20 standard tokens like Shares Post and Open Finance. Um, you can think about these important protocol layers that allow you to create these um, investments um, and products that you that very efficiently that are tough to do in a paper world. So, for example, um, using DYDX, you can create a levered long or short on any ERC-20 standard token. With SET, you can take any arbitrary groups of ERC-20 standard tokens and essentially create a token that wraps them all up. It's an ETF on the fly, a custom ETF mm-hmm. at a single share or single token level. Um, you can talk about Dharma that allows you efficiently do debt, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what becomes really interesting is, let me paint a picture of where we end up and how powerful that is, and then we can talk about how we get from here to there. So imagine a world in which we start doing a lot of these single asset tokenized REITs, 
and we start to tokenize a lot of the class A here around New York, where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, I can now take a token from each class A building in downtown, wrap it up with set. I now have a downtown class A ETF. Mm-hmm. That's just not possible to do today. You cannot make that sort of micro bet. Mm-hmm. You can do the same for uh, Midtown, for the Upper East Side, for Brooklyn, for Queens. Um, using DYDX, I can go long downtown. I can go short Midtown. I can mm-hmm. go long Manhattan. I can go short the boroughs. Now this starts to spread nationwide. Imagine a world in which uh, people wanted to try and make investments or developments or bets ahead of the announcement by Amazon of where they were putting in their HQ. Mm-hmm. Suddenly now you could. You could decide, you know what, I'm going to start doing development plans in Denver, but I want to hedge my exposure. Or instead, I'm going to start buying up pieces of logistics buildings in or office buildings in Queens or what have you. Um, If you are a developer, you can hedge your exposure. If you are a tenant, you can have a piece of equity in a building that you're driving value to because you're a large tenant. Um, There are a lot of different ways in which people can make very specific and concrete investment theses in ways they can't today. The public REITs. Um, highly liquid, highly fractionated ownership, well run, but huge baskets of properties, mm-hmm. huge baskets of properties. You're just betting on an entire sector or maybe a huge region. Private REITs or private funds can be more targeted. They usually are not at the, private REITs are usually not at the single asset level. And again, just a very illiquid marketplace. They don't syndicate out as widely as they can. And I think it's worth stepping back and asking, well, why liquidity or why fraction? Why is that important? Um, and it wasn't, this is going to sound like a sales shtick, and it is, but I believe it, um, which is modern capitalism got kicked off and transformed 400 years ago when a bunch of Dutchmen and a few Englishmen started meeting at the corner in coffee houses, the corners of Broad and Wall and in Amsterdam and near the Thames, um, where they traded these newfangled things called stocks and these newfangled things called joint stock companies. And so they combined two magical ingredients, fractional ownership and secondary trading or liquidity. You put those two things together and amazing things happen and they mm-hmm. weren't done before. You had small partnerships, i.e. not widely syndicated ownership and it, those weren't liquid. So to, uh, highly fractionated ownership with liquidity does amazing things. Today, private capital formation exceeds public capital formation, not just in the US, but around the world. And the reason why is going public is an expensive, onerous, long process. It has a lot of advantages. Ownership is highly fractionated, right? These companies have hundreds of millions or billions of shares. Liquidity is deep, hundreds of millions of shares trading a day, billions of shares on the New York Stock Exchange. But that going public does not work for a $20 million raise or a $50 million raise or um, the kinds of private commercial real estate deals that we want to tokenize. Um, But now what you can do is you can retain the advantages of private capital formation, which is it's faster, cheaper, and easier, but you can bring some of the liquidity of the public markets to private capital formation. We think it's going to do two things. It's going to increase private capital formation and it's going to explode a secondary market that is almost non-existent today. What are the types of assets that this technology will empower that don't exist today? Right. So these kind of digitally native assets that people want to trade, create, benefit from, et cetera. What do those look like? So I think some of the interesting ones I've seen are, you know, originally people were creating protocols or dApps on Ethereum and the monetization model was create your own protocol token, um, which and, makes- And what you're talking about there, just sorry to interrupt, but is I create a protocol, a dApp, whatever it is, there's a token associated with it. And the way that both I make money and you as a investor or user is through the appreciation of the price of the token. That's correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People call these utility tokens. Yep. Um, some of them actually had some utility programming in it. Most of them just simply had to do with, it was a payment mechanism for that application. But the monetization model really depended on it being not just using that application, but being used as a store of value more widely, becoming an alternative currency. And the problem with that is, in a world in which you start to get widespread use of blockchain-based applications, consumers and businesses are not going to be high-speed currency traders with 2,000 currencies. That's just not, nobody can do that. So, um so what happens now is you can have models where you're on Ethereum where you're just charging an ETH, right? You're providing this service you're using this world computer to provide this great decentralized service, a decentralized Uber or whatever it is. And instead of charging in your own currency that requires your consumers to be um, the next Don Wilson of, of currency trading, instead they're just paying in that one universal um, payment mechanism, Ether. But now you can create um, securities that get a portion of those revenues that are equity in your application. 
that that drive a lot of the same incentives that you wanted to when you were using utility tokens. So, um, and these would be uh, native digital. So you could create that Uber decentralized app, and you could create a security token that programmatically got 10% of the gross revenues that went through the app. Okay, now I got it. I can see the activity on the app. It's programmatically automatically giving me my dividends. Um, it is, you know, of course you're gonna use the Harbor platform because you wanna be compliant and, um, and the functionality that we provide and the services we provide. And then you can see what's going on and you can um, create people who are incentivized in the success of that. In other words, if I love that Uber app, I can now buy that security that gives me a portion of those revenues um, and have an ownership interest in this application that I'm using. All right, before we continue with this conversation, I want to mention our sponsor again, BlockFi. Remember, they do crypto lending. So you post your crypto as collateral, they give you a US dollar loan, and you can use the US dollars to do whatever you want. You should visit BlockFi.com slash POMP and then tweet at me that you went. If you tweet at me after you went to BlockFi.com slash POMP, maybe I'll throw you a like, a smiley face, or the fire emoji. The fire emoji is the best. Remember, go to BlockFi.com slash POMP and I'll see you on Twitter. It seems to me like the digitally native asset is, um, there's an example and I actually forget who, uh, I can't remember, it, it may be uh, Lawson Baker. I think um, is the one in loss if I'm wrong, I, I apologize, but um, basically said, look, a lot of people are talking about tokenized securities. They want to take the existing equity in the, you know, whatever company, et cetera, mm-hmm. and they want to basically put it on a blockchain, right? They want to quote unquote tokenize it, but that would be like taking the newspaper and saying, okay, well, we're going to run it through a copy machine and then we're just going to PDF it and we're going to put it on the internet. And there'd be value, right? You could get more mm-hmm. distribution. People could read on the internet, all this stuff. Um, but you would lose the value of, you know, A-B testing the headlines, uh, being able to edit in real time, mm-hmm. comment sections, right? You know, user-generated content, um, the ability to, uh, to to distribute, right? Kind of press one button mm-hmm. and it goes to all these different platforms, et cetera. The way that newspapers ended up on the internet was the ones that won were the organizations that understood the full power of the technology and began mm-hmm. to use it, right? I think most of the tokenized securities that I saw in the beginning, right, when we were really talking about this a bunch and, and kind of out there, was the PDF version, right? If people were just saying, mm-hmm. oh, I have an equity, I want to just kind of stamp it over, right? And then all of the processes and services that were that were still needed to make it compliant were you know relatively bureaucratic, slow, and efficient, et cetera. So, so it wasn't that big of an improvement. It feels like to me the step you guys just took with this single asset read, right, mm-hmm. private read, et cetera, is one of, if not the first, full use of the technology and, and understand the power of it. And then that's going to get supercharged with these uh, kind of on-chain or digitally native assets that yeah. are, are created from the genesis of the security. It's all on-chain, right? It's not, it's not a representation. It's not kind of moved from analog to, to digital. What's your take on how this evolution happens, right? So, so we're seeing kind of the first shots across the bow. People are starting to tokenize stuff and, and they're trying different things. Maybe what I just said is completely wrong. Maybe it's right. You know, who knows? But how do we get from 99.9% of the world not tokenized securities to more than 50% tokenized securities? Right? Like, what's that big leap or, or how, how do we get there? Um, so we have hypotheses. We've got theories. We've got game plans. But no one really knows. Mm-hmm. Just as Completely in, fair. Yeah. Just like in 1995, 1996, if you'd said, how is it that everything's going to happen on the internet? SaaS wasn't invented yet. You didn't have Amazon Web Services. Um, you know, Amazon just started going. Um, you know, um, maybe there's a Jeff Bezos out there who already can see far into the future and knows exactly how this is going to roll out. But I think um, I think what happens is you start where that liquidity offers the most value. Real estate's a good one. Um, I think there's some great examples to use with sports teams. Um, there are. Um, some other great examples of traditional companies like medical device companies where they're very sensitive. They raise a lot of capital. Um, they consume a lot of capital and um, this could be useful for them. And it starts there and then expands out. This is going to look like a normal tech adoption curve. It's a bell-shaped curve. Um, if you've ever read Crossing the Chasms, a B-School mm-hmm. favorite. Um, I lived it at Zenefits. It's a true exp- that book is accurate. Um, and but, so, but is it the assets that lead the evolution or is there other things? Like, like let, let me give you two it, examples. Is it 
an asset owner comes in with, whether it's a trophy asset or just an attractive asset and says, I want to tokenize this. And, and that's another kind of milestone moment. We kind of walk our way towards the evolution of eventually everything's tokenized. Or is the more powerful thing that a huge investor comes in and says it, or, or is it actually not binary? It's, it's you, you kind of need both at the same time to it, build the liquid market. It's a ratchet, you're ratcheting up on both. Okay. I mean, this is fundamentally, Harbor is, we don't do investments on balance sheets. So it's not, we're a technology provider, we're like the salesforce.com. Um, and uh, and so you need to have both. There's a classic marketplace problem. eBay needs both buyers and sellers. We need both buyers and sellers. Exchanges need both buyers and sellers. So um, our, we are focused relentlessly uh, relentlessly on what we call the three Qs, quality owner operators with quality assets or funds that are quality investments. Because our thesis is you get those first few quality investments, that'll bring in quality investors. Quality investors will attract more quality investments, which will then attract more quality investors and on and on you go. And it's not just us, it's other folks in the space because um, all of us, our biggest competitor is not the other platforms out there. Our biggest competitor is inertia from doing this in paper for 400 years. Mm What do you, if we come back five years from now, right? We do another podcast and we say, you know what? Tokenized securities didn't work, right? We actually, this entire thesis was wrong. What would be the number one reason why you would guess right now that would be true? Like, what's the biggest threat to this happening? I don't, I think the threat is being too early. I don't think oh, interesting. it, I don't think it doesn't happen. Um, this, but I mean, you can look, I mean, you look in the crash of, of 99, 2000 with the internet stocks. Um, every single one of those <laughs> business models is a success today. Mm-hmm. Even pets.com, the old, the old sock puppet that got relentlessly parodied. I'm blanking on the name right now as we speak, but there was a company that recreated the pets.com model exactly mm-hmm. and had a huge exit a year ago. Mm-hmm. Every single one. So, Web van, all of them. Yep. Yeah, all of them did. So it's not, um, it is going to happen. When I paint that vision of, when I talk to people in, of how hard it is to get liquidity in private securities today, what the blockchain does, what happens once you have that critical mass of opportunities and investors. Everybody I talk to, not crypto enthusiasts, everybody I talk to in the traditional financial world, they look at me and they say, that is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we love it. And the constant, what we constantly hear is, we don't want to be first, we want to be early. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many big, large financial institutions want to talk to us after we've done our third deal, mm-hmm. after there's a critical mass of trading or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's why it takes people who are pioneers like, you know, like with Don Wilson, who's a pioneer in crypto, who's a pioneer in trading, and who's a pioneer in security tokens, that you always need those early pioneers that are crossing the, the prairie and, and going into the unknown. It, it, it's funny because uh, I've joked with a couple of friends before, it's like a, um, a Venn diagram. Right. Usually those quote unquote pioneers are uh, folks who are entrepreneurial or built their wealth in, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors. Mm -hmm. They also have the validation, sophistication, reputation, kind of all the things that you need to when they say, I'm going to do this, people pay attention. But they have to lack the surroundings of a bureaucratic organization. Right. So, so mm-hmm. I, I talk a lot about, um, you know, take a Fidelity, for example, like Abigail Johnson and that entire family is like pretty entrepreneurial. They've got mm-hmm. this huge innovation lab, they've done all stuff. They launched, you know, Fidelity Digital Assets, all everything. There's only so much they can do, though, within the confines of Fidelity. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's like $7 trillion asset manager, all this stuff. Take somebody like Don Wilson, who, again, I'm not comparing him personally to Fidelity, but what I'm saying is you have an entrepreneurial person who's got a bunch of experience, who's got capital, who's got assets, and has got enough of a reputation that when they stick the flag in the ground, people pay attention, mm-hmm. right? And I think we've gone through this exercise of, let's say there's 10, 15, 20 of those people. How do you go find them, right? And sometimes it's, you actually don't go looking for the people, you go looking for the right type of asset, maybe right. token of securities, or you go looking for the right type of fund, or you know whatever it is, and those people just happen to be the ones who own it. Mm-hmm. but. If you can find those kind of champions within certain asset classes or, or, or niches of the industry, mm-hmm. that's what we've like really honed in on. We need more of them, right? But there's not enough of them there today, and I don't know how to go get them. So um, there's a number of ways you do it. Um, some of it is retail communication. We mm-hmm. take lots and lots of meetings, um, and you have to be careful about getting too sucked in because <laughs> there's a lot of folks that just want to use you as a as a free uh, one-on-one graduate seminar on blockchain. Mm -hmm. Um, The other is by um, focusing on quality owner operators, quality assets, getting those first few that are people like 
Don Wilson and DRW and Convexity Properties. Um, and some of it is um, getting the word out, like appearing on quality podcasts and getting the word out. Um, and then finally, I think um, it's being part of an ecosystem. So, you know, I've gotten impressed by investors in Harbor and others like, well, you guys should do an exchange. There's a lot of value there. And you should do a stable coin. There's a lot of value there. It's like, well, yes, but there's a number of problems with that. One is, okay, that's a whole nother lift of a tech stack, relationship stack, a regulatory stack. And what we're doing is complex and hard enough. The other thing is, is there's a reason why DTCC, State Street, Goldman Sachs, New York Stock Exchange, um, and high-speed trading firms are not all one company today. And the reason why is all of them depend on relationships at each level, and those relationships become competitive when you put it all under one roof. I don't want to compete with exchanges. I want to partner with them. I don't want to compete with 0x and DYDX and SET. I want to create the security tokens that make what they do so valuable. I don't want to. I don't want to recreate the wheel on custody. I want to partner with people who are best in class, like Mike Belshi at Bitco. Um, and I want to become a. Pl- I don't want to compete at being an investment banker. You know, our registered reps, are, um, working through our our, our partner um, broker GCS, they're performing an investment banking function on their first few deals because we have to to prove yeah. it out. But long term, I don't want to compete with Goldman Sachs. I want to be. I want to be that compliance platform that services them, that yep. services JP Morgan, that services others. And I think, you know, when you're asking who are going to be the innovators, a lot, there's two kinds of people that adopt tech early. One is people who are tech enthusiasts. That's your Don Wilson's. Some of it are people for whom it gives them a competitive advantage. It solves a critical need that nothing else will, and that gets them over the hump. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is, is who are the Don Wilson's, the Sam Zell's, the Barry Sternlicks? Yep. Who aren't yet them, right? Who is the Don Wilson from 20 years ago? Who's the Sam Zell from 30 years ago? People who have good track records, they're quality folks, um, but they're not yet at that level for whom this can differentiate them. When we think about distribution, we're talking to potential broker-dealer partners um, across Asia and Europe. Um, it's not going to be the bulge bracket banks that jump to do it uh, initially. It's going to be um, those boutique banks that, to your point, are not bureaucratically bound, who are nimble, who can see this for what it is, and can see a real differentiation, right? Mm-hmm. What's the next Goldman Sachs? What's that boutique investment bank of 20 or 30 really good guys who want to become the next Goldman Sachs? Those are the people that are going to jump on this early, um, but who have the skills, the background, and the connections mm-hmm. um, to really legitimate this and really push it forward in the right way. Absolutely. Um, all right, before we wrap up, I always do a, a rapid fire set of questions. Um, other than Harbor, what's the most important company in crypto? Bitco. Why? Institutional custody. You need you need the institutions. I know that in the crypto community, there's a little bit of a sort of negative reaction short the bankers. But <laughs> fun, um, I mean, that's been said by wiser folks than me. But fundamentally for what we're doing, tokenized securities, the institutions have the vast majority of the assets and the money to invest. And so you have to provide the institutions they need to get involved. And that's even true with crypto. You've talked about for Bitcoin, how important it is to institutions. Of course. Um, if you could wave a magic wand and change or improve one regulation, what would it be? Uh, the limitations on maximum ownership in private companies. There's that that 12G limitation of 1999, mm-hmm. I, I would raise it significantly. What would you raise it to and why? I'd start by raising probably to 10,000 and see how it goes and then incrementally raise it. I don't think there necessarily need to be limitations like that. Mm-hmm. It's particularly in a digital world, a tokenized world, in which you can track this all really well. Yeah. Um, those limitations made sense where in a paper world, it would be hard to track who the owners were. Mm-hmm. We're not in that world anymore. Okay, I think it's fair. Uh, most important book you've ever read? Angle of Repose. Oh, what is that? I've never heard of that. Wallace Stegner. Okay, what is that? Um, it, so Angle of Repose, it's a story about a miner. Uh, he's a mining, he's a geologist. Uh, goes to not, a bunch not of, like a crypto miner. Not a crypto like, miner, no. Not like a real, original, like an OG miner. Yeah, like an OG <laughs> miner. He's a geologist that works with mining companies. It's set turn of the century. Um, and it's the story of his relationship with his wife and his family. And Angle of Repose is a mining term. When you... A pile of material like a pile of dirt or stone or gravel, and you pile it up, eventually the angles of the sides become stable. They will neither increase nor decrease, and it's different for each type of material. And so he was using angle of repose as an analogy to over time as you build up a relationship, your relationship becomes stable, and there's that angle of repose and what it means to 
have that kind of a long-term relationship with somebody. Ah, I like that a lot. It, it was a pure surprise. It was a phenomenal book. It's okay. phenomenal. I'll book. have to read that. I, I never even heard of it. Um, I'll let you finish up by asking me one question. But before I do that, I ask one non-crypto question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to just accept that aliens exist. We always see them depicted as human-like aliens, right? The comparable is a human. Do you think that there are a- alien animals or alien pets? I wish people could see the reaction, the facial expression when I ask this question. People look at me like I am absolutely nuts. No, I'm thinking. I, so yeah, yeah. I would say that, um, yes. Yeah, so if, if aliens exist, I would say that mathematically it's a high likelihood. I mean, if you read mm-hmm. some of the papers, they're really mm-hmm. interesting and you extrapolate out statistically. Um, you would have pets. You'd have livestock. You have you would have um, you'd have sets of species or beings mm-hmm. who have more powers than others that mm-hmm. would exploit them for food or companionship or labor or some sort of mm-hmm. value. It, the, one of the craziest stories of 2018 that, like, I don't even think people talk about, let alone talk about for a very short period of time. Uh, Do you see this Harvard astro? astrophysicist, I think it is, who uh, came out and said there was a, uh, I'll call it a UFO, it's not the proper terminology, but something entered into the solar system and moved in a really weird way and then accelerated out. And he's like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. He's never said like, you know, aliens are real or anything. He's like, I think that was a spaceship. Yeah, I, I did see that. I mean, I, he didn't say like that's the more likely than not scenario. He said yeah. it's a possibility. It fits the data we have, right? Fair, fair. Um, and part of it was, it was this long cylindrical form, and it, yes. it looked like something out of like Star Trek, the original Star a- Trek. Absolutely. Which is the good one. I, I'm not a next gen guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, it could have been like, I mean, like I was looking at it thinking maybe there are tribbles on it or something. I, I literally, when I read that, I like read it four or five. I was like, wait, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> right. And then uh, I, we should go back and look actually if. The professor then got fired right, yeah. from Harvard for, for saying the crazy stuff or if people actually believe it. But uh, to me, that's the one story that no one's really talked about. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, what one question do you have for me? So, I mean, you are known as being an eloquent and thoughtful advocate for Bitcoin. Um, and I'll take the, the question you gave me to your circumstance. If Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies generally don't succeed in five years, why not? Uh, so all cryptos is probably more complex. So let me just stick with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, first of all, it can go to zero, right? I think there's a lot of people who say, like, it can't go to zero. Um, I think we need to separate price from it will still run somewhere on a computer, right? So, I, you know, it's, as long as somebody's running the Bitcoin software, it'll still run, but the price could go to zero, right? It could mm-hmm. be worthless. Um, I think that there's a couple of different things. So one, obviously, software bug would be crippling, right? And I don't know if it's fatal, but but it would be damn near fatal. Um, I think that uh, there would definitely be issues if people lost confidence in uh, the idea of decentralization. So there's a bunch of questions around, is it actually decentralized? How decentralized is it? Who, who controls what, et cetera. But I think for the majority of people, they say it's decentralized. No one person or organization has control. If that became like irrefutably provable that one person controlled it or like the u.s government created it or you know something Mm -hmm. like that i think that could be really um a a big shock to the system um along those lines uh the what i call immaculate conception story of satoshi nakamoto as a person Mm -hmm. uh, you know a, a group who is it we don't know if that was somehow debunked or or uh we found out the facts behind it i think that would hurt the story Mm -hmm. and so there's the technical software bug stuff. There's actually like the story I think is really, really important. It's probably more important than most people will admit. Um, and then the third thing is I actually think uh, if the government or some other regulatory body came in and banned it, it would actually drive adoption. So I don't yeah. think that's a risk. The risk that I think actually occurs is um, we saw it today. Uh, I think it was today. Um, There's two Bitcoin addresses that was added to the OFAC list. Yeah. And that's not going to be a shock to Bitcoin, et cetera. But what that started me thinking about was this idea, well, what if there becomes a very simple way to take away the pseudonymity, to introduce real identity, and then you basically get introduced all of the sanctions and, and kind of mm-hmm. all the things that we have in the traditional banking system? 
you almost are like it takes away the the idea of it being an alternate currency or an alternative mm-hmm. financial system and it just becomes an exact mirror image and so maybe you get away with like oh there's no rehypothecation or maybe there is mm-hmm. or that type of stuff but if there's all of the governmental oversight i think it would lose some of its luster and yeah. in, in usage um, and that's not to say that it's used to sidestep regulation i i'm of the belief that there's a lot of things that aren't other people's business but it doesn't mean you're doing bad things right and, and so there's a fine line there and you know it, it's um uh zuko said this to me one time that i thought was a really interesting thing um he, he said uh everyone is talking about the privacy coins like why do you need to use a privacy coin you must be doing something wrong right monero zcash all this stuff that was the exact same argument that a large percentage of people used and also the government against encryption, I think in the eighties or nineties. Yes. And the rebuttal was no, 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 no. This is actually about security and safety and, and all this stuff. And there was this big hearing and, and you know, there's a speech online that you can go listen to. Um, but it's now industry practice, mm-hmm. right? If you don't have an encrypted website, that's a weird thing, right? Yeah. And, and all stuff. And so, if you look at that from the privacy coin standpoint, does that mean like every token is going to have encryption and privacy and all stuff? Probably there will be elements of that. But also does that carry over into other aspects of the use case, right? Like does that actually mean we get comfortable with the idea that uh, I'm going to transact with pseudonymous people or organizations or, or wallets? And I don't even know who you are. I just need to know that you're, you know, quote unquote legal, right? You're compliant, you're legal, et cetera. But I actually don't want to know your name. So it's interesting for currencies, maybe that works. For securities, you have to know the name. Security, securities, the whole different case. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm talking about Bitcoin but, specifically. But I yeah. even so take it back. You know, so you, um, I take it back. Even you're doing soon. You're using synonymity now and taking that back to encryption. Mm-hmm. I take it back several hundred years before that. If you're not doing anything wrong, why do you need? Um, why do you need to be protected against unreasonable search and seizure? Uh, <laughs> no, course. seriously, yeah, you're not yeah, doing yeah. anything wrong. Why yeah, can't yeah. you be forced to testify? Yep. There are reasons why our lives are not open books. And there are reasons why all of us in our lives have had people who make their lives an open book and we find those people toxic and we stay away from them. Yep. I mean, there are, it is a hallmark of uh, a mature person in a civilized society that we have layers of, um, of access to our private selves. I I couldn't agree more. I think it's a a super fascinating thing. And, uh, you know, look, I'm uh, very bullish on a lot of this stuff, but in the back of my head, it could all go to zero. And I, I think one one piece of this that has precluded a lot of people from publicly stating how bullish they are. Right? I talked to a lot of people in private. And they're like, oh, they're bullish. All stuff. I'm like, why don't you talk about this publicly? They're not comfortable being wrong in public. Hmm. Right. So, so they're actually very bullish. But if they're wrong, they're hedging. But if you if you're not willing to be wrong in public, you're never willing to be right in public. And you're not really informing a conversation and debate. And so their response to that, I think, would be, well, the upside of, quote unquote, being right in public isn't anywhere close to the downside of being wrong in public. It's probably true. I So if completely fair argument, the part that I've just kind of accepted on a personal level is the authenticity of this is what I believe. I could be right. I could be wrong. Here's why I think I'm right. And actually failing and being open about that and just that authentic approach to it will overcome being wrong. Yeah. So people that, I mean, it is, if you do a, a spreadsheet and you calculate out all the probabilities, you reduce it down to a net present value, then yes, they probably are right that there's more downside. But those aren't the people that start um, valuable industries and valuable companies and new technologies and new ways of doing things. Those are people who take risks even when they don't necessarily pencil out because the uncertainties are so great. At the moment which you can pencil it out and orbit and know exactly what your ROI is on it is the moment at which it's an old established industry. They end up working for the people who, uh, who are willing to be wrong in public. One can only hope. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much for this. This is awesome. We'll have to do it again as, uh, as you guys took us more assets. Thank you, Pop. Really appreciate being on. Absolutely.
All right, you reached the end of the podcast. Congratulations. I appreciate you listening all the way to the end. You deserve a trophy. But before I hand out the virtual trophies, remember to go visit BlockFi.com slash POMP. They're the crypto lending leader in the US. They do it in 45 states, interest rates as low as 8%. And you can use the US dollar funded directly to your bank account to do whatever you want. You should definitely go visit BlockFi.com slash POMP. You know you want to do it. So just do it. BlockFi.com slash POMP. Before I let you go, though, I wanted to mention Draper University one more time. Remember, Tim Draper is one of the most legendary venture capitalists in the world. He's funded many of the biggest companies that you've heard of. Today, they have two separate programs around blockchain at Draper University. The first is for entrepreneurs looking to get their idea off the ground who can attend their pre-accelerator program. And the second is a week-long intensive program for corporate executives looking to learn about blockchain and crypto. You can check out draperuniversity.com and apply there. The deadline is approaching fast because the programs are in January and February. So definitely check out draperuniversity.com. Again, that's draperuniversity.com. And one more time, draperuniversity.com to make sure that you can apply. Thanks so much. And I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.